The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 3rd, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Kansas City Chiefs' comeback win over the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 54. Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, they did it. Kyle Shanahan and Jimmy Garoppolo, they did not. You get all that in the intro, and there's still more episode to come. After that, there's more. The New Yorker's Louisa Thomas will be here to chat with us about the Australian Open, where Novak Djokovic won his 17th major title, and American 21-year-old Sophia Kinnan won her first. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio, the author of Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic, Stefan Fatsis. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, and a plane ticket haver for a <laughs> flight to take him cross-country for the Slow Burn live tour immediately after we talk about the Super Bowl. It is Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Good morning, Josh and Stefan. That live tour, D.C., this week, February 5th. We start two days. Please get your tickets. Come out. I think we've got a good show. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So D.C. on the 5th, New York on the 6th, and then next week, L.A. on the 11th, and San Francisco on the 13th. Slate.com slash live for tickets. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What a Super Bowl. Let's recap. Trump talked to Hannity. <laughs> a Johnny Cash song was exploited. OJ made an appearance during a top 100 players montage. The Rock screamed, time to unleash hell. Chiefs fans did their racist chant. Military color guard. Two USA songs. World War II veterans. As David Roth wrote on unnamedtemporarysportsblog.com, after two decades of leveraging and re-leveraging the actual thing that has value here, a game that people really do want to watch together, this is the celebration we're left with. At least in the end, we could celebrate the actual game, which turned out to be pretty exciting. Mahomes, Mahomes, the Chiefs offense to three touchdowns in the final six minutes and 17 seconds, while 49ers coach and offensive play caller Kyle Shanahan decided to stop doing what had worked so far in the game. Final score, Kansas City, Missouri, Chiefs 31, San Francisco, California, 49ers 20. Chiefs coach Andy Reid finally wins the big one, and the Shanahan family's Super Bowl head coaching record drops to 2-1. and one. This was actually kind of a slog in which you were lulled into believing that the 49ers defense had figured out how to stop Mahomes. They were up by 10, and then with seven minutes left, Mahomes throws 57 yards in the air to Tyreek Hill for a 44-yard game, 
And then suddenly I was like, oh, shit, this is not over. Joel, were you lulled up until that point? I think so, because I think I even tweeted something in the, like at the end of the third quarter. I was like, oh, it looks like the 49ers are gaining strength. I can't remember a time when Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs offenses looked like that. It was like an effort. You could see everything that they did required so much of themselves to just, you know, stay above water. And I just like, you know, normally it's a much more fluid looking offense. They're hitting big plays downfield and none of that happened. And you'd like to think, well, I mean, are they going to figure this out or not? And that's kind of the thing with the Chiefs is that no matter how bad they look, no matter what point in the game, they look overwhelmed, they're underperforming. They're never really out of it. And that's the thing about the Chiefs. Their offense is so good that it gives them a huge margin for error that they can kind of piddle around all game long and then they can eventually figure it out by hitting a couple big plays over your head. Then, you know, you come down, the Chiefs are down 10, there's 7-13 left in the game, they're facing a third and 15. A lot of teams, that seems like that's kind of the end of the road. You don't think they have a chance, but with the Chiefs, that is a regular play for them. Like, they're never out of it. And, of course, they hit Tyreek Hill, you know, 44 yards down the field, and that kind of sparked that comeback. You can never rest with the Chiefs. If you're the opposing defense, you can never assume that the game is in hand because all it takes is a couple of plays to turn things around. Mahomes looked like Eli Manning there. Yeah. Late in a Super Bowl, throwing a deep... Oh, I thought Stanley you were insulting field. him. Okay. Yeah. I thought you meant he looked like yeah. Eli Manning up until that point. <laughs> he looked like yeah. Eli Manning at all points in the game. <laughs> right. So that was a third and 15 play. Mahomes had asked for that play on that drive. In that moment, it was called 2-3 Jet Chip Wasp. 2-3 Jet Chip Wasp. And the key to that throw was his being able to have time to drop as far back as he did and unleash a really long throw to Tyreek Hill because Hill was... He was 13 yards behind the line of scrimmage. And Hill was certainly wide open, but Mahomes had to get him the ball. And the reason I think that the Chiefs offense had trouble earlier in the game was the 49ers pass rush. Mahomes had some uncharacteristic bad throws through behind Hill a couple times, actually, for interceptions. But Nick Bosa, whatever you want to say about his tweets and his uh, political beliefs, is a very good football player and was getting a lot of pressure on Mahomes. Knocked the ball away from him once. Uh, The rest of the 49ers defensive line is excellent. But on this play, when they needed a pocket for Mahomes, when he needed several seconds to be able to drop back and throw the ball, he did actually have the time and space to launch the ball deep. And that's how the Chiefs are able to come back. I will be curious to see if there is some more to learn about what was going wrong for the Chiefs up until that point. The statistics were, I mean, during the game, I'm like reading these stats on Twitter and you're sort of like dumbfounded. Uh, Football perspective said it was the 37th game of Mahomes' career. Only once had he picked up a first down on less than 26% of his passing plays. And up to that point, he was at like two through three quarters yards per play. The 49ers had eight. The Chiefs had four and a half. The Chiefs only had possession seven times up until like nine minutes to go in the fourth quarter. I mean, that's kind of why the game felt like a slog to me. It just felt like kind of a boring Boring. game where not much was going on. You know, the teams didn't really have the ball that much. And that is the kind of game that the 49ers can win, Joel. And they had those eight yards per play, you know, a bit with Jimmy Garoppolo through there. But a lot of it was on the ground and, you know, with Debo Samuel running on end around plays and the kind of... I don't know if it's innovative. It might have been innovative in like 1950 and innovative again in, mm-hmm. in 2020. But like Kyle Shanahan's running game, his offense was allowing the 49ers not only to get 
big chunks of yardage on offense, but to keep the Chiefs offense off the field. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing, right? The running game had been effective pretty much all night long. They were averaging something like six yards a play going into the fourth quarter. People want to blame this on Kyle Shanahan. If you're a Falcons fan, if you're a 49ers fan, you want to point to Kyle Shanahan getting conservative. Kyle Shanahan, the offensive coordinator when the Falcons blew a 28-3 to lead in the Super Bowl, you might recall. Yes, right. So you either want to blame him for being conservative or you want to blame him for not trusting his quarterback. Whatever it is, there's a narrative around Kyle Shanahan that he doesn't know how to manage late-game situations, taking the crown from Andy Reid after last night. But the thing about it is that I come back to, so we talked about the third down play that Pat Mahomes hit in the fourth quarter. Well, let's go a drive later where yes. Jimmy Garoppolo misses a pass. Like, I, I mean, it was it was laughable how much he overthrew Emmanuel Sanders, who's like a step behind the defense. You hit that play, that's touchdown, that's game. But Jimmy Garoppolo couldn't do it. And Garoppolo had been the best quarterback on deep throws all year. I mean, it's not like Garoppolo is a total amateur back right. there, but... Shanahan also didn't evince a huge amount of trust in him at various points throughout the game and throughout the playoffs. But you're right, Joel, on that throw, that deep pass to Sanders, he overthrew him by a couple of steps. But to me, that wasn't even the decisive play of the game. The decisive play of the game for me was... Well, would have benefited been a touchdown. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. I just mean as in terms of a play call with... It was like 6.06 left in the game. They run the ball on first down with Raheem Mostert, and then they pass on second down, incomplete to Kittle, and they pass on third down. He misses Debo Samuel on a screen. This as, is a real as sports White. This I is know. a real sports podcast. Yeah. I know. As Stephen White, former NFL defensive head, pointed out after watching the All-22 all night, apparently, <laughs> Debo Samuel was wide open on that third down play. But it's like, why are you passing on second down when you are trying to A, burn the clock, and B, your running backs are dominant. This made no it's sense. Different. You're in the Super Bowl. You have a quarterback. You think that you can trust your quarterback to complete something on second and five. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know that the alternative is to say, well, Kyle Shanahan wasn't being aggressive and he was playing like he had a lead that he really didn't have against the Chiefs, right? Because if you're only up by like a couple of scores, that's like being tied with the Chiefs. And so you could say, well, he was trying to be aggressive, put the game in the hands of his quarterback, and his quarterback just simply wasn't up to the challenge. You know what I mean? It's tough to blame Kyle Shanahan for the failures of Jimmy Garoppolo. And I'm not saying to Jimmy Garoppolo, I don't want to reduce it all to this is Jimmy Garoppolo's fault and Pat Mahomes is the hero. But if you look at like what they asked their quarterbacks to do, the Chiefs asked Pat Mahomes, hey man, we need you to make a play right now. Carry us home. He could do it. But Jimmy Garoppolo, that's just not something he can do. Yeah, I don't know, man. They didn't need Jimmy Garoppolo to make a play right there. They're winning. Their running game is dominant. They need to get five yards on two plays. They've been averaging five yards a carry. I don't know. All of this is contextual, right? So. Sure. In last year's Super Bowl, when the Rams scored three points, if Jimmy Garoppolo was the quarterback of his old uh, New England Patriots, the Patriots probably would have won by more. <laughs> and in this year's Super Bowl, Mahomes throws two interceptions. If the 49ers had taken advantage of more opportunities earlier in the game, then you know even these amazing comeback Kansas City Chiefs there might not have been enough time on the clock for them to be able to execute. And as you pointed out in your piece that posted on Slate overnight, Josh, one of the crucial times when that happened was at the end of the first half when Kyle Shanahan decided not to use a timeout. They had three timeouts with over a minute and the ball. That was a mistake that was obvious to everybody. In real watching, time. Watching the game in real time. And yet sort of towards the 
into the game when the 49ers are holding on to this lead, you do kind of tend to forget that the reason that they have a lead by this precise amount of points is that there were opportunities earlier on that were forsaken. And Shanahan said after the game, I liked where we were at. Well, how do you like where you're at when you're tied at 10 against a team that is always scoring like buttloads of points? (laughs) And you're essentially saying, I don't want to score more right now. I'm good. Doesn't that sound like a guy who's afraid of his quarterback, though? You know what I mean? Like, to me, that sounds like, well, you know what? He hasn't screwed up. He hasn't thrown an interception. We've controlled field position. It could be worse. I guess that's the thing about the Chiefs, I guess, is that they make you think that it could always be worse. But the 49ers had so many timeouts at that point that they could just run the ball down the field and at least get into to field goal range. It was, yes, I think there was some aversion to have Garoppolo try to do something. They're running down the field in such big chunks that it was, I think, less about Garoppolo there and more about we're getting the ball to start the second half. It was like what Les Miles used to do as Mm -hmm. LSU coach. He didn't understand that the score as it was right then would like not actually be the score for the entire rest (laughs) of the game. And then the more points that you scored in the beginning, uh, in the early stage of the game means the fewer points that you need to score to win later in the game. And I don't buy the, the Garoppolo risk aversion because on that very same drive, they did wind up throwing the ball long and taking a chance and George Kittle got called for offensive pass interference otherwise they have the ball down inside the 15 yard line yeah but that was a huge I mean that was a surprise like when it happened it was like oh god they actually took a shot with Garoppolo down the field and it almost paid off I don't know I just I tend to think that Shanahan was hamstrung by his quarterback and maybe I mean the reductive in the way that I don't want others to be but I do think that the Chiefs make you scared and you're like well I don't want to do anything that's going to give them an opportunity. I'm not, I don't want to give them more opportunities to have the ball. I just want to hold the ball and try to ride it out. The other piece of this, though, is that they had every reason to believe that, well, you know what? Our pass rush is dominating their offensive line. Maybe we'll be able to keep that up. And, you know, Stefan, you mentioned earlier that we're going to go back and figure out what happened with the Chiefs offense in the first three quarters of the game. I guess I am going to put this out here. Is it possible that Pat Mahomes was concussed or that something was wrong with him and that his you know, that he had cobwebs because he got hit really hard a couple of times in that game and he didn't look right. You're right. And we sometimes we just kind of forget that like uh-huh. these guys are out there having to play with injuries, uh-huh. play through injuries. I remember after one of those hits near the goal line where the ball went out of bounds, I think it was Jimmy Ward that hit him and the ball flew out of bounds. And I was like, man, it could have been worse, but it was still a hard hit. And he looked weird after it. So I don't know, man. It could have been something like that, too, that they were just like, well, we've got him under control. We've got him shook. We don't have to do anything outside of what we normally do to win this game. Yeah, that would that would have been dumb if they thought that. <laughs> there was a moment in the, I think it was in the first half when Garoppolo got hit and threw an interception and the replay seemed to indicate that he had his eyes closed. So maybe that was an issue that he was just closing his eyes and instead of having them, them open. That, that's, <laughs> that's something to consider. I did uh, look up quarterbacks throwing with their eyes closed. And I found a story by Lee Jenkins in the New York Times in 2005 that explained that Drew Brees did drills with his eyes closed. And Garoppolo is taking it to the next level. He's bringing that, <laughs> live action. He's bringing right. that, that to live action. Yeah, yeah it's an intriguing approach. Andy Reid, the outpouring for him throughout the playoffs and then after the Super Bowl 
seems totally appropriate. I mean, this is a guy who, this is his 222nd win as an NFL head coach. He had a reputation earlier in his career that was well-earned for having his teams lose playoff games in frustrating fashion a lot of times after puzzling coaching decisions. But in this game, Stefan, and whether it's because Andy Reid has changed his philosophy or whether because whether it's that personnel. Or, you know, it's not like, you know, he had Michael Vick and sure. Donovan McNabb before. Yeah. They're, they're not bad. Or whether it's because the NFL in general is more aggressive on fourth down. The Chiefs went for it on fourth down a couple of times in the first half. And it wasn't even considered like unusual or particularly aggressive. I mean, that's where we are in the league now. And uh, one of those plays that the Chiefs ran was inspired by uh, the 1948 Rose Bowl, the guys pirouetting in the backfield, a direct snap to a, a running back. It was like both aggressive and fun. And the Chiefs, I feel like, you know, leaned in more to who they are and what they do. And the 49ers went away from it. I mean, that's kind of narrative talk, but it's true. Yeah. No, I think it's totally true. There was a little bit of well actuallying about the 1948 Rose Bowl, though Though Eric Bieniemy did say that they they were looking at these tapes, and then on Twitter there was a lot of, well, actually, Notre Dame ran the similar <laughs> offense in the 1920s, Newt Rockney. But still, like, think, I mean, that's what I loved about it. It was less like what the actual genesis of that formation was, and more that there are coaches in the NFL that are looking at video from 1948 to come up with innovative play ideas in 2020. It's crazy and it's fun. And yes, exactly, Josh, the Chiefs seem to have more fun when they are playing. Even the pure, you didn't need to do the pirouetting, right? They could have just slid over, <laughs> which is what the 1948 clip. It's like the barking dog did. play. Yeah. The pirouette. A little yeah. distraction. A little distraction. So I, you admire that. And yeah, with Andy Reid, I mean, part of the outpouring of affection is what Andy Reid has always had. He's this big Wilford Brimley dude, right? And he's, he's really sweet and players love him and he's not an asshole screaming, you know, at quizzing the players about the history of the franchise kind of guy and setting crazy dumb rules. He is a much more genial, thoughtful, intellectual, participatory coach and players like that. And when you deliver that approach to players, they respond in a particular way that empowers them and they feel empowered, whether they're actually empowered or not, or they're just executing plays is irrelevant. They feel like, hey, this is more fun and we have more freedom and it's more creative. I am curious who Joel would rather play for, though, because for the Chiefs, the running game, a little more vestigial. They Damian Williams had a, a great game, so it's not yeah. like the, the running game was a total afterthought. The 49ers, maybe uh, not as as genial and, and fun a head coach, but that guy can make anybody a 1,000-yard running back. The running game is king. Young coach, Kyle, though. Kyle Shanahan. A young coach could relate to the Joels exactly. of the world, players of his generation. I wouldn't want to be as expendable as a running back appears to be in the 49ers system. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Matt Breida was the guy earlier one in the day year. Like, you're a, one day you're a <laughs> Mostert, the next day you're a Breida. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could be just forgotten. Yeah. I'd, I'd much rather be in that Andy Reid offense where you are the guy and you get the you get to carry. And I mean, you're also a part of the passing offense. It's a pretty all encompassing effort if you're the running back in the Andy Reid offense. You get to do a little bit of everything. Didn't he have LaShawn McCoy at some point as well? Or am I getting yeah, am I making that? Right. Yeah, right. So I mean like, he's got experience having like a guy. I wouldn't want to be Raheem Raheem Mostert, we might not hear of him in like two years. He may be gone to be honest. Same with Matt Breida. 
and uh, Tevin Coleman, who uh, miraculously recovered from a shoulder. I mean, I thought he was done when he got hurt. When he left in the NFC Championship game, I thought his season was over, and he started in the Super Bowl. But I think the thing with Andy Reid for me is that him winning is like a triumph over a bad narrative. It's like stupidly enough, his resume and contribution to the game now is unassailable. Like he's easily into the Hall of Fame. And I don't know, it probably would have happened without this, but there would have been the butt thing, right? But with now, you can't take that away from him. I imagine this is what it would have been like if Tony Romo had won a Super Bowl. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm glad that dumb people don't get to be right about this guy anymore. I do think the Donovan McNabb Super Bowl like final drive thing is a little bit overblown. Obviously, it was bizarre at the time that they were ta- there was like the world's slowest <laughs> offense. But I do think Certainly like bad. it's possible McNabb was hurt. Like it was the end of like a long and and taxing game. There are extenuating circumstances there. But when I was looking back and writing this thing on Sunday night, this game in 2011 where they're losing to the Packers by 11 points at the beginning of the f- fourth quarter, they have fourth and one on the Packers 16 yard line and they kick a field goal. They even they like missed the field goal. It's like a 34-yard field goal. But it would have gotten them with within eight points in the fourth quarter, and you're giving the ball back to Aaron Rodgers. It's like that is really stupid. Like no matter what we say about Andy Reid, if he's like taken too much crap for this or it's been overstated and his long record shouldn't be overshadowed by a couple of bad playoff games. But like that is just like so bizarre to me that a coach would make that decision. And again, whether it's he's changed, whether it's the NFL. I think it's probably the NFL. Well, he's helped change the NFL too, though. Yeah. But if you look at the numbers, just going for it on fourth and short is the thing that has dramatically shifted sure. in the last few years. Like on the broadcast, you heard Troy Aikman when the Chiefs uh, were down 10 saying, oh, they can just kick a field goal here. It's fine. They're within two possessions. They need a field goal anyway. Just like that is mo- like monstrously idiotic thinking like the broadcast booth is now like well behind coaches on the field which I guess it's like better than the the alternative but I I think you know we can talk about what Fox and other broadcasters think that the quote-unquote casual fan wants during the Super Bowl like they want the you know images of players looking like superheroes or whatever whatever the hell that was but like all of the broadcasters have clearly made a decision that like if fans want like a ref analyst or whatever, there's still like nobody in the booth explaining like, all right, mathematically, this is what it makes sense to do. Like this is a percentage, you know, you know, win probability. Like it doesn't even, and it doesn't even need to be like that fancy or make it. It's just like, yeah, no, Troy, that's like really stupid. You just like want to score a touchdown. Then if you like score another touchdown, you win the game. You don't like need to go to overtime by kicking a field goal. I mean, it's, it's just like, I don't understand why that has not evolved. Can I make uh, one final point about this season in conclusion? Joel, ESPN's The Undefeated talked about the year of the black quarterback, ran a ton of stories about the black quarterback. We end the year with Lamar Jackson as the most valuable player, Unanimous. Patrick Mahomes winning the Super Bowl and named the Super Bowl most valuable player. Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson for the next decade, health permitting and personnel permitting. This could be a really terrific run for the NFL and an affirmation of who should be playing these positions when they're given the opportunity to play them. Yeah, I mean, I find what's really interesting about those two guys is their non-traditional paths, right? Like, it's not like they were going to quarterback coaches and learning dropbacks from the time they were eight years old. You know, they're dudes that played other sports and kind of came into the position and learned how to play it in a 
quote, non-traditional way, right? And maybe there's some sort of a lesson in that. And also in just sort of the idea that like quarterbacks don't necessarily come in the package you expect. I saw Patrick Mahomes play in college because I'm a Big 12 guy and he played against TCU. And I say this all the time. And I thought Patrick Mahomes was terrible in college. Like when they said he was going to be a first round pick, I was like, I cannot believe this. But obviously, you know, the thing is, is that there's something there that Andy Reid and all these other guys got a chance to see. And you just kind of hope that that sort of open mindedness about what a quarterback looks like will hold through. Yeah, I mean, God forbid, man, you hope that we get another decade of this and that we get to see this kind of football for the next 10, 15 years. I mean, Mahomes said in during one of the post-game interviews that I thought I was going to be a baseball player. His father was a major league pitcher. Right. So for him, football wasn't even a given when he was in high school. They said he played basketball, too, that he was like a really good point guard. So, yeah, man, I mean, just all the stuff that we talk about in terms of like just trying different sports, not winnowing your windows very early. I really love that like these are the dudes who did it, not just because of, you know, quote, identity politics, but because of their roots to the game and how they were resilient and kind of stuck to their own little particular paths. It just shows that there's so many different kinds of ways to play football. They don't all have to look like Matt Barkley, guys. Well, Mahomes has a little bit of ways to go if he wants to catch Jimmy Garoppolo in terms of Super Bowl rings. Garoppolo's got two. Mahomes has one. So scoreboard there. But Mahomes is on his way. So everybody talks about we're going to see them again. I mean, Peyton Manning has two. One of them, when he was like a deeply compromised dude. Aaron Rodgers won one. You know, John Elway won two at the end of his career. Dan Marino never won any. Like, we can't take these things for granted. It may never happen this way again. And so we really should appreciate it because, like, you just cannot take for granted, especially in football, that Pat Mahomes is going to be here again on top of the NFL. So kudos to him and Andy Reid that they got it done this year because you just never know. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Joel had to run, but Stefan, we must press on. And what better way to press on than on the tennis court on Sunday in Melbourne? Novak Djokovic fell behind two sets to one to Dominic Team in the final of the Australian Open. He looked mentally out of it. He looked physically compromised. And then suddenly he was neither of those things. Djokovic won the last two sets, 6-3 and 6-4, to win his eighth Aussie Open in eight finals, his 17th Grand Slam overall. That's two behind Nadal and three behind Federer. Djokovic beat Federer in the semis for the all-time Grand Slam title lead. Joining us now is Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker. Hey, Louisa. Hey. In your piece after the men's final, you wrote referring to Djokovic, is there any modern athlete who better reflects and in some strange way seems to understand the connection between the mind and the body? Uh, As I noted, that connection 
was a little bit on the fritz in the middle of the match against team. And then he got it back again. It's sort of amazing. He had what was pretty clearly a mental lapse after he was called for two time violations in one game and in which he hit a double fault and sort of went off the rails a bit. And suddenly it was like this little mental blip was in his feet and then it was in his arm and then it was maybe he wasn't feeling well and then maybe he was dehydrated and he was sort of frantically on the sidelines eating different things and recalibrating his sodium levels or who knows what, you know, he does to sort of get the machine back in order. But it was pretty clear that, you know, whatever had momentarily affected him mentally was suddenly kind of having a physical effect. And and I think that that's something that he throughout his kind of searching for some sort of way of like being in the world he does a lot of yoga he's like very into very kind of peace love but at the same time he's someone who's very kind of driven to perfectly calibrate everything he eats everything he breathes drinks how many times he chooses food all of this kind of obsessive stuff toward getting an edge and i think that he does see this kind of really profound connection between how he's feeling mentally and how he's moving and and in sort of weirdly works for him. Did his mental breakdown over the time violations, did they feel justified to you? I mean, no. He, it was it was weird. <laughs> it was really weird, especially because this is not something that is, there is some discretion about when the umpire starts the clock, but there is now a, like a clock that is posted. So he could have very easily looked over and seen how much time he had to serve. This is not something that he has to guess at. It's something that like he was getting mad at the umpire for doing his job in the most basic way. He's getting mad at time. Exactly. He was mad at time. In fact, the umpire showed tremendous restraint in not, you know, giving him some sort of penalty for actually touching him, which is not allowed. Djokovic went over to him and sort of very oddly tapped his shoe. Later, he said he didn't know about the rule that you were not allowed to touch umpires, although that seems pretty (laughs) basic to me. And he also said he thought it was a very friendly tap, but it was a very, very odd gesture. And the umpire, I think, did exercise a lot of restraint and certainly discretion in letting some, that some slide. Some umpires have not in uh, yeah. major finals. I mean, I think it would have been very easy for that umpire to do something. I mean, not only did he Damien tap him on the foot. Sorry, Damien. The man has the name. I mean, not only would he have been completely justified just on the foot tap alone, but then Djokovic sits down and he gets all sarcastic with him, which, if my recollection is not incorrect, other players have been penalized for. Well, this is, this is the way that umpires should actually act. He did a good job in not overreacting. Right. So just because other umpires have overreacted, <laughs> have over, have overreacted <laughs> in the past, that doesn't mean that Damien should have in this case. Louisa, I found that it's often really hard to understand or know or see when players are physically compromised. Like in the Federer-Sandgren match in the quarterfinals, Federer kind of started to lose it in the second set before he went off the court for the medical timeout. And then he comes back and he's like clearly moving slowly. But there, there was a period of time in that match when Federer just started losing. And it's like really hard to tell why. It's just like a quarter step slow. And maybe just as the point builds, he's not able to get as much power on his shots. And it just starts to kind of accumulate as a, a rally goes on. And it's interesting that even within the same match with the same player and the same opponent, it can be hard to tell exactly what's going on, whether it's mental, whether it's physical, whether it's a groin or a back or a, a leg. And it it's kind of humbling as an observer to not even to not be able to understand that. 
Absolutely. And certain athletes will go out of their way to not let you know what's going on. You know, they'll keep the poker face. They will not want to betray any weakness. You know, they don't want to give up any blood in the water. But I think Djokovic is not like that. I think Djokovic is someone who does express himself a little bit more freely. Some people, you know, bridle at that or think that that's unprofessional. Some people think that that's very human. You know, this is how he's feeling. And why does everyone need to be like Nadal, who doesn't want to betray any hint of human failing? So I think that that's part of it. I also think that, you know, that also speaks to how fine these margins are. I mean, if you do have some sort of ailment that, you know, makes you slow down half a step, that's the difference between a rally shot and a winner. (laughs) So I think sometimes there are certain tells, you know, something that a lot of people talk about is like serve speed, you know, will drop and you can see how much they're able to push off their legs. Certain kind of things will hinder them in certain specific ways. And you can sort of look at those movements and those actions and see how they're affected. But this is actually a case in which even Djokovic was pretty open about the fact that he didn't really know what was going on. It was just this weird short circuiting of his system that that he was sort of was able to sort of like recover from in this, in this kind of superhuman way, but was very oddly affecting him. And you said recovered in an effective way. I mean, it was sort of like he tried everything. I mean, it was was like an energy gel pack. There were dates, there was a banana. There were how many different drinks? Like three different (laughs) bottles. It was one of my favorite parts of it. Sort of like frantic. And he wasn't just like drinking them. He was like frantically guzzling them. (laughs) And it was a medical timeout. So the trainer came out, the doctor came out. So he was clearly aware that the system is not functioning properly and the instant recovery was kind of remarkable i mean i don't know whether that's is it the energy gels or was it the extra few minutes to try to recalibrate what was going on in his mind but the match turned completely i mean team was good well team wasn't bad even when Djokovic's level was kind of moving up and down more than teams was right, i thought right. and let's talk about team the austrian 26 years old, has now lost in three major finals, all of which are kind of facing insane odds, playing Rafael Nadal in the French Open final twice, and then Djokovic in the Australian Open final. None of those guys have ever lost in any of those contexts. Rafa's never lost a French final. Djokovic has never lost an Aussie Open final. Louisa, after this match was over, the like ESPN uh, ticker announcement of what had happened made me laugh. It said, golden age of men's tennis continues. And then the type under it was, no man born in the 90s has ever won a major. <laughs> like, uh, that's, I don't know if that's what golden age means. But I, I, think, I think the point they're trying to make there is that, and you noted in, in your piece, no new Grand Slam winners among the men since the 2014 US Open. The big three of Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal just keeps winning all of these titles team is very, very close to being on their level. And I don't know if you would you agree that like in terms of just pure physical skills and talent, you would probably want teams shots and game right now over any of those guys. Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of young players who have really exciting, interesting games. I would put team at the top of the list. But, you know, someone like Daniel Medvedev in the U.S. Open showed how a kind of very unusual and uncomfortable game could be really effective and interesting to watch. 
But yeah, team's game, I think, is incredible. He's hit such a heavy ball. He's so fast. And that's not something I'd really appreciated, actually, until watching him in this tournament in particular. But yes, his great hands. He actually was very effective at net. I mean, he has a very kind of good court coverage. You know, he could use a little bit of improvement on serve, but now I'm really being nitpicky. The things that he lacks are just the ability to win those handful of points in those certain moments that the other guys seem to really have a stranglehold on. I mean, I I will go back to one thing. This isn't really the first time that Djokovic has appeared to be totally out of the match and come back and won. He actually did this in the 2015 Australian Open final against Annie Murray, and Annie Murray was really bothered by it. He talked about how it was distracting to him in the third set to watch Djokovic really kind of seem to stumble and you know, almost kind of be punch drunk and then suddenly come back and, and play Nintendo tennis, basically. And I think that you can fault him for, you know, playing possum, or you can say that actually this is a guy who really knows exactly what it takes to win. He knows exactly when he needs to put his foot on the gas and he knows exactly when he can take it off. And that's the kind of thing that a player like team probably has to learn. I mean, that's maybe the kind of thing that comes with experience. That's maybe the kind of thing that team has going to have to learn to deal with, if not do himself. And it's not easy to face a player like Djokovic, to say the least, yeah. or Federer or Nadal in different ways. And team in this tournament, at least, had to face two of them. So, you know, it's a big task. If you're part of this generation and you've watched Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal win 55 out of the last 63 majors, yeah. are you just yeah. hoping that, that, look, time never loses a match, so they're going to go away fairly soon, but you're in your 20s, you're in your physical prime, it must be really dispiriting to go into a final against one of them. Well, I don't know, because it's it's definitely dispiriting, I think, for the li- likes of, like, Milos Raonic and, like, the mini-generation before, like, sure. Team Medvedev and Tsitsipas, guys who've had just more cycles of years going by where they lose and lose and lose and lose, I think... Medvedev at the U.S. Open last year was, I don't know if you agree with this, Louisa, like it was the first time a player of a younger generation actually seemed like he was going to potentially win a Grand Slam earlier than you thought he might have. Like team at this point, like he's past ready, like he's oh, yeah. good enough. Yeah, no, I think that's, I actually think that's an interesting, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I think that's true. I think he was ahead of the curve in some ways, yeah. which is not this normally. And then in this this tournament, like Medvedev loses in the fourth round to Vavrinka in five sets. Tsitsipas loses to Raonic in the third round. And on the one hand, you can say that's like disappointing. Like these guys, you know, in order to like make it to the next level, they need to be more consistent. On the other hand, it's like normal. <laughs> you know, right. it's it's right. not normal to make it to the semis or the final in every Grand Slam. And for Medvedev to lose in five sets to a guy in Vavrinka who's won multiple slams, it's like, it's not like that big a deal. It's true. And, you know, even if you take Djokovic's own example, Djokovic was 20 when he won his first Australian Open, which on the one hand you could say is a kind of rebuke to the younger players who can't break through. And, you know, we now think of 20 as basically infancy in tennis. On the other hand... It took him a few years to become the Novak Djokovic that we know. It's not like he went from that first win, you know, to being the the all-time great that he is now. Um, it took him a while to sort of figure out what kind of player he was and sort out all his mind 
body problems and, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, I, it's not linear at all. Um, and tennis in particular, I think is a sport that it is very iterative and there are also four slams a year. So there are four opportunities to lose early a year, not only four opportunities to win. Yeah. And let's, you know, don't forget the team did beat Nadal in the Australian Open. Yeah. It's not Nadal's best Grand Slam by a long shot. He's only won one of them. And beating Nadal to French is going to be a much more difficult task, but team could do it. Yeah. So we'll see. On the women's side, Sophia Cannon, a 21-year-old American, beat Garbina Muguruza in three sets to win her first Grand Slam. Cannon did not have as tall a task in, in her draw in this tournament. She only had to beat one seeded player in the tournament. That was the number one overall seed in her home slam, Ash Barty. Um, and Kennan did also have to beat Coco Goff in the fourth round. But Louisa, like when, when Kennan won that Goff match, uh, the headlines were like, uh, Coco's run ends at the exactly. Open. It didn't really <laughs> mention the other player. I mean, Kennan had beaten Serena Williams in the French Open last year. She wasn't exactly coming out of nowhere. And yet, even if we look at American tennis and not just world tennis, this is not somebody who is particularly well-known or was particularly seen as a threat to win this title coming in as the 14th seed? I think within tennis circles, a lot of people have been watching her and sort of buying stock. She was the most improved player in the WTA, given that award this past year. And she did play in the year in finals, which goes to the top players based on their performance in the previous year. So she's definitely been rising and she did have that tremendous win over Serena Williams at the French. But yeah, not a lot of people know who she was. And it's really unusual, as you say, even for especially for an American, a young American, too, you know, but she's sort of seems OK with that. I mean, I think part of that is she doesn't seem to have been seeking much attention herself or her agents haven't been maybe seeking quite the same level of attention as some of the other players. And she didn't, um, besides that, whenever Serena have a sort of I mean, I'm about to say she didn't have a signature win, but that is a signature win. Um, it is a little bit baffling, um, but it also, in some respects, speaks actually to the depth of American women's tennis. Um, there are so many players that people have been excited about that it's actually possible to be this good and be lost in the crowd. Um, I don't think she's going to be lost anymore because she clearly is very charismatic in addition to being extremely good at tennis. Well, I was going to say that it's also possible that maybe she's not off the court charismatic enough to merit that kind of attention. On the court, she's clearly intense. She's driven. She talks about how she never gives up. Interviews with her father, who's been her coach in a very positive way. It sounds like since she, for her whole life, and with other coaches from earlier in her life, all talk about this sort of preternatural ability to focus and want to beat the opponent and never lose her cool from like age five or six. It also seems to me that she is a stereotypical tennis prodigy, groomed for this from the time she was like three years old. I mean, she was being taught by high-level coaches from the age of like five, grew up around tennis matches and met Maria Sharapova when she was like six and played in some doubles match with professional players when she was seven. Her father, after she beat Serena last year, said, I think she was more famous when she was five. So there's something on one that's sort of not remarkable, right, about her story because it feels like this is the ultimate American sports product. I think that's true. I mean, there were these pictures that were making the rounds of her with, you know, Kim Clijsters and I mean, it just these famous tennis players and and her talking up her big game. 
And I think that it's, it's pretty amazing how there was this kind of like an ellipsis in her teens. You know, maybe we'll see more of that as some players don't really prioritize junior tennis in quite the same way. She is very much in the model of Maria Sharapova. Um, her parents are immigrants from Russia. They came with not very much money. Her, I believe her dad was you know, driving cabs to make ends meet. They go to Florida. Um, they meet a famous tennis coach. Um, who had worked with the Williams sisters. I mean, they ha- you can sort of write the script of this, and the script has actually been written now several times. Amanda Anisimova is another player who kind of fits this mold, a young, blonde, American-Russian who has been compared to Maria Sharapova. At the same time, there is something a little bit quixotic about her story. There is something that has been capturing people's imagination. There have been these pictures of her with these tennis legends kind of make- circling the internet, and she's this kind of wide-eyed, fairy-like prodigy and there's something kind of um amazing about seeing that like both disappear and then and reemerge you know i don't really know what happens next i mean i think that's the the big question you know it does she disappear again or you know is this actually the beginning of a an enduring career at the top of the game yeah i mean obviously we don't know the answer to that but i had the same question because if you look at the characteristics of what make her great there is her clear just will to win, her drive, her her competitive drive. In the final, there's this game where it's tied uh, to all, fifth game of the third set. She's down love 40 on her serve, and she hits five straight winners. One ace, but four rallies where she hits clean winners. Just amazing, amazing tennis when she needed it. She didn't always need it in that match. Magritte double faulted eight times, including on on match point. The semi against Barty was like played at an incredibly poor level. And so she didn't need to be at her best throughout the whole tournament. But like who whoever does, when she need, did need to be at her best, she was able to summon that level. So she has that competitive drive. She's a great counter puncher. She's able to redirect the ball. She's a really good move, mover. She has a lot of energy. She's very emotional on the court, which is fun to watch. It's interesting to watch. And so you add all of that stuff together, and it depends a lot on fitness, a lot on not having the biggest weapons, not having a big serve. There's not a huge amount of margin there. I could totally see a scenario when, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but like maybe this is her one Grand Slam title. Maybe this was just like the pinnacle of her career, not, and there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. And And I think if you add all that stuff together, Louisa, I think she's only really interesting when she's winning. Like she's not somebody who's like a 15-year-old with amazing skill. She's not somebody who has the power of a Madison Keys. She's not somebody who has an unfamiliar story. And so you can talk about things like will to win and great counterpuncher when you're winning. When you're not winning that stuff, it's like kind of tour level stuff. I think that's right. And it may be that she's a tour level player. I mean, I do think that she's already established herself as a fixture in the top 20. You know, I don't think this is a case where someone like Lena Ostapenko won the French Open and then and then really did struggle after a year of, you know, playing pretty well. I think that she has pretty much shown that she can keep up. But it is a good question because, you know, she didn't have the toughest draw in the world. And you're right. She'd only produced spectacular tennis when she needed it. That's a skill, of course. We were just talking about Djokovic doing the same thing in some respects. But at the same time, not all of her matches are really high quality matches. I do think that you don't really know what a Grand Slam is going to do to a person, you know, whether or not she's going to be able to transform this confidence into something whether she's going to be able to bring some aura onto the court that really shakes other players. I mean, I do think that, 
you know, after she won that game at 2-2 to make it 3-2, she really seemed to break Muguruza. Muguruza didn't win another game. I mean, she seemed completely rattled by it. And so there is a world in which winning the Grand Slam is, is like that. You know, she sort of is able to sort of carry this tremendous momentum forward. But I think what's more likely is that, you know, like many of these other young players, there's going to be some real ups and downs. And I wouldn't be surprised if she goes into the French. And it's very rare for a player to lose in the first round of the Grand Slam of the French after winning the Australian Open. It has happened, but, you know, it wouldn't be a total shock. She's also very young. She's 21 years old, you know, so I think she's shown that she can have a really great career on the WTA. I don't know if she's shown that it can be amazing. Yeah. And Sloan Stevens won that one U.S. Open and does not look particularly close. She lost to the first round in Australia. Yeah. Although, I mean, that's a player with very high ceiling and low floor. I mean, she did make the final of the French. You know, she's won Miami. She's had kind of some of these career peaks to go with the hard times. Louisa Thomas writes about tennis and other things for The New Yorker. Louisa, always great to have you on. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll be talking about a Fatsis afterball that became a Fatsis piece. It's about Romy Loud, the guy who tried to become the first black owner of an NFL franchise. Uh, He did not. It's a fascinating story about him and about the league and what it has not ever accomplished. If you want to hear that and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up. It's just $35 for the first year. And you can sign up for that Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. And now it is time for Afterballs. Quarterback, the last time the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Four, Lynn Dawson. I remember him from inside the NFL on HBO. And I remember that Super Bowl, oddly <laughs> enough, as I mentioned last week on the show, my first football memory. America remembers Lynn Dawson. He's immortalized in a photograph taken by uh, a guy named Bill Ray. Kevin Clark wrote about this in The Ringer a few weeks ago. The photo never ran in Life magazine at the time, uh, the internet, the slideshow era of the internet, if we can thank it for anything, it's for reviving this photo. It shows Dawson smoking a cigarette at, he's in his uniform, he's smoking the cigarette. It's halftime. He's got a fresca it's halftime. under his chair. It's just time for a smoke. And a half fresca. Yeah. Gotta get ready for the second half. What a great moment. Thank you, Bill Ray. Bill Ray died earlier this year. So uh, this is... His legacy, probably other things are his legacy too, but thank you for providing us with this Glenn Dawson smoking and fresca photo. Stefan, what is your Bill Ray? Near the end of his baseball memoir, Ball Four, near the end of the 1969 season, Jim Bouton is traded by the Seattle Pilots to the Houston Astros. Bouton meets the Astros in St. Louis and that night throws one perfect inning of knuckleballs. On the bus back to the hotel, Bouton writes, I was treated to several stanzas of Proud to be an Astro. The song, he explains, was written to the tune of It Makes a Fellow Proud to be a Soldier by the satirist Tom Lehrer. 
which goes like this. Now Al joined up to do his part, defending you and me. He wants to fight and bleed and kill and die for liberty. With the hell of war, he's come to grips, policing up the filter tips. It makes the fella proud to be a soldier. That's from a performance in 1959 when Lehrer was at the peak of his immense popularity. Lehrer told audiences that he wrote It Makes a Fellow Proud to Be a Soldier because the Army didn't have no official song when he was drafted a few years before in his early 30s. Lehrer, by the way, had one sports hit, Fight Fiercely Harvard, which he wrote as an undergraduate there and is still performed today. Quick digression, here's Lehrer introducing Fight Fiercely Harvard in 1960. I was reminded not too long ago upon returning from my lesson with the Scrabble Pro at the Harvard Club in Boston. (laughs) That's kind of crazy. Anyway, Lair largely retired from songwriting and performing in the early 1960s. He was working on a PhD at Harvard, which he never finished, and for the next 40 years taught political science, math, and musical theater at MIT and Santa Cruz. But Lair remained popular well into the decade, so it wasn't, I suppose, entirely surprising that a Major League Baseball team would adapt one of his songs. In Ball 4, Boughton reported that all rookies were given a printed song sheet with the lyrics to Proud to be an Astro. The song is sung with great gusto in the back of the bus, Boughton wrote, and Harry Walker, the manager, doesn't seem to notice. Alas, I couldn't find a recording of Boughton reading or singing Proud to be an Astro. After Boughton died last summer, Ricky Cobb, who writes the Twitter feed Super 70s Sports, tweeted that during an interview in 2015, Boughton agreed to sing it for him. Cobb has the tape, but he told me that Boughton had recently suffered a stroke and was self-conscious about his voice and asked Cobb not to play the audio publicly. Boughton did publish four verses of Proud to be an Astro in Ball 4. Here are a couple. Now the Astros are a team that likes to go out on the town. We like to drink and fight and fuck till curfew comes around. Then it's time to make the trek. We better be back to Buddy's check. It makes a fellow proud to be an Astro. Now, our pitching staff's composed of guys who think they're pretty cool. With a case of scotch, a greenie, and an old beat-up whirlpool. We'll make the other hitters laugh, then calmly break their bats in half. It makes a fellow proud to be an Astro. Greenies and scotch. Those were the days. Good verses. I was reminded of all this, of course, because of the Astros' contemporary vices, arrogance, and cheating, which, and I think you know where this is heading— makes this a good time to update Proud to be an Astro. So with apologies to Tom Lair and to Jim Bouton, Larry Durker, Kurt Bleffrey, Harry the Hat Walker, Joe Morgan, Jimmy Wynn, Sandy Valdespino, Scipio Spinks, Wade Blassingame, who Bouton said looks like a Latin lover and smokes a long, thin cigar, and to all the other members of the 1969 Houston Astros, I give you three verses of Still Proud to be an Astro. Now, the Astros are a team that likes to steal the pitching signs with a camera in the outfield and wireless phone lines. And when the catcher drops his hand, they bang upon a garbage can. It makes a fellow proud to be an Astro. Do, do, doodle, do. Now, Manfred is commissioner of the grand old game. He probes the dreaded thievery and says it is a shame. Hinch and Lou now take the fall. The players get to just play ball. It makes a fellow proud to be an Astro. Do, 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 do.
do, do. Now, Taubman is a Wall Street bro who got a baseball life. Then he taunted lady writers about the closer who beat his wife. The owner says it's all a ruse. The SI story is fake news. Altogether now, Josh, it It makes makes a fellow fellow proud to be an Astro. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Josh, what's your Bill Ray? All right, Stefan, there is going to be a tonal shift here. Last week, Michael Sokolow wrote a piece for Slate about a really tragic incident, one that I had never heard of. The man at the center of it was Jim Tyrer a Chiefs offensive lineman who made six all-pro teams, played tackle for Kansas City in their victory in Super Bowl IV. Sokolow writes that in the early morning hours of September 15th, 1980, Tyra woke up, fumbled for the loaded gun he kept in his bedroom, and shot his wife, Martha, before killing himself. Martha Tyra was 40 years old, and Jim was 41. They had four kids, three of whom were in the house at the time. The murder-suicide sparked sensational headlines around the country. 32 years later, another Chiefs player, linebacker Javon Belcher, would kill his girlfriend Cassandra Perkins in a murder-suicide. In a posthumous examination, Belcher's brain was found to have signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the brain disease whose symptoms include memory loss, confusion, impaired judgment, impulse control problems, aggression, depression, suicidality, Parkinsonism, and eventually progressive dementia. Tyrer's brain wasn't studied, so we'll never know if he had CTE, but friends described him behaving erratically and irrationally before he killed himself and his wife. As Sokolow writes in his piece, even if we knew with certainty that Tyrer did have CTE, it would be irresponsible to attribute his murderous act to the brain disease. We don't know why he did what he did. All we know with certainty is that he did it. In my book, The Queen, one of the stories I tell is that of George Bliss, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Chicago Tribune who broke the story of Linda Taylor, the woman known as the quote-unquote welfare queen. After he reported on Taylor's alleged crimes, Bliss's mental state began to decline. His colleagues described him losing his characteristic passion for his work. He would spend his days sitting at his desk, staring off into the distance. In 1978, Bliss shot and killed his wife, Therese Bliss, then killed himself. I ended my chapter on that episode by quoting from a newspaper that said that people like Bliss need understanding and care, not punishment for a problem that's not their fault. That item did not mention Therese Bliss at all. The coverage of Bliss's murder-suicide mostly focused on this as a tragedy that happened to him, not one that he perpetrated. That's because he was famous, he had friends who could attest to his brilliance, but also it's hard for us to empathize with the murderer, and so it's easier to act like the murder didn't happen. In Sokolow's piece, he notes that a week after the Tyra murder-suicide, Sports Illustrated ran an item in its scorecard section that began, the news out of Kansas City last week that former chief tackle Jim Tyra had shot to death his wife Martha and himself was inevitably one-sided. Press accounts of the tragedy dealt with how Tyrer had logged 14 NFL seasons, how he'd been an all-pro selection, and how he'd suffered financial setbacks since his retirement from football. But little attention was paid Martha Tyrer. To address this oversight, a woman named Pat Livingston sent an unsolicited article to Sports Illustrated. Livingston, who SI identified as the wife of longtime Chiefs quarterback Mike Livingston, wrote as follows. A friend died yesterday. Her name was Martha Tyrer. 
Some people called her Marty. She was a private person, controlled, conservative. She liked to read and take walks. But she'd surprise you with her exuberance about playing bridge or eating sweets or crab rangoon. Her husband shot her. I don't know why. Everyone's guessing. He was depressed about business. He must have broken down. Still, those were no reasons to shoot my friend Martha. All I read is what a good guy Jim Tyrer was. I read barely a mention of Martha, mother of four. I read nothing about how well she raised her kids, or how much fun she could be at McDonald's, sneaking another order of french fries, or how kind she was to new football wives, how courteous, how welcoming, how stable. The piece then concludes, My loss is not as great as that as Sharon Arbanis or Faye Burford, with whom Martha was closer. They lost a compadre, a bridge buddy, a best friend. My loss is not as great as her children's. They have no mother to hug this morning. My loss is not even as great as the public's. It never heard about Martha. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, we talk about the first, the earliest effort to have a black ownership group in the NFL. Well, you think about how long it took for baseball to integrate, and you think about how many years there were columnists actually fulminating for baseball to be integrated, and how the notion of integrating baseball was supported in the black press and in some parts of the mainstream press. And what I found here is that sort of similar idea in the black press. This was, you know, the two or three pieces I found about it were that, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. And that, that this is finally, this dream won't be a fantasy anymore. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelma Obeidi, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.